Jesus, we just want to thank you. That's hymn 791, 791. The Bible tells us in, uh, I was debating on, I'll get to what I'm going to say here in a minute. I was debating on which song to sing first out of the two that we usually sing on Sunday night. And uh, uh, Scripture answered my dilemma, or took care of my dilemma. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That's in Psalms 100, 102, or something like that, somewhere around there. But I remembered that uh, verse. I just can't remember where it is exactly. But uh, this answered my dilemma here. Let's go to, let's be thankful to the Lord first, and then we'll sing the other song uh, in praise. But 2 Corinthians 9.15 tells us, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Jesus, we just want to thank you. We'll sing all four verses. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thank you for being so good. Amen. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Praise you for being so good. Now, if y'all feel like it, I'm going to mess you up one more time, Joey. <laughs> if y'all feel like it, you can raise your hand to the Lord now. Amen. Uh, I thought about doing that there on that verse and should have. But anyway, third verse. <laughs> Savior, we just want to serve you. Savior, we just want to serve you. Savior, we just want to serve you. Serve you for being so good. Jesus, we know you are coming amen jesus we know you are coming jesus we know you are coming take us to live in your he said he's coming and he said he's gone to prepare a place for us and I know he's going to take us with him. Amen. His word says so. Hymn number 338. 338. Wonderful grace of Jesus. I love singing about the grace of Jesus to this tune. Wonderful grace of Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us, Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've tasted his salvation, you've tasted his grace. Amen. All three verses. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall his praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus Deeper than the mighty rolling sea Higher than the mountain Sparkling like a fountain All sufficient grace for even me Broader than the scope of my transgression Sing it <clears throat> greater far than all my sin and shame Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus Jesus, praise His name. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn aside. Giving me liberty For the wonderful grace of Jesus Reaches me Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus Deeper than the mighty rolling sea Higher than the mountain Sparkling like a fountain all sufficient grace for even me Broader than the scope of my transgression Sing it greater far than all my sin and shame Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus Praise His name Wonderful grace of Jesus Reaching the most defiled By its transforming power Making him God's dear child Purchasing peace and heaven For all eternity That's a long time For the wonderful grace of Jesus Reaches me Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus Deeper than the mighty rolling sea Higher than the mountain Sparkling like a fountain All sufficient grace for even me 
Broader than the scope of my transgression Sing it greater far than all my sin and shame Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus Praise His name Amen, you may be seated That last few words are praise His name That really gets high, don't it? <laughs> Ooh-wee, you got to pull out a nose hair to get that note at the end, don't you? <laughs> oh, me. Well, good evening again. It is wonderful to be able to sing about two, two common themes that really do go hand in hand. They're, I don't know that they're so different. They're, they're certainly different, but uh, they do go hand in hand. The goodness of God and the grace of God. Uh, and certainly we can be reminded of both of those things tonight and just to praise the Lord a little bit tonight over that. Take your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 17 tonight. Psalm 17. Sunday nights, of course, we've uh, been going through the Psalms. We went through Proverbs for a little while. We took a break, went through Proverbs for a little bit. And we've been back in Psalms some. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 17, 15 verses here. I want to read it for us here and we'll pray in just a moment, but just to help kind of set us up. First of all, we have to understand that every single psalm that is written by David, uh, not every psalm is written by David, but every psalm that is written by David, we don't exactly know every little detail about when it was written. We do know this, David at some point in time is clearly going through some incredible difficulty here in this psalm. Uh, nevertheless, in this psalm we're going to find a prayer for righteousness to prevail. This is a common theme of the Psalms. We often think of the Psalms as just, um, just praise and adoration, and there is plenty of that in the Psalms, don't get me wrong. But over half of the Psalms themselves, in total of everything that is written in the Psalms, is lamentation, mourning. Uh, it is a cry of desperation and even disappointment at times. What we're going to find tonight, though, is a prayer of confidence, trusting that God, the righteous God, the God of righteousness, will execute righteous judgment in the midst of the perverse world, the wicked world, the unrighteous world. And specifically, we know this about David. While we don't know the exact time that this psalm was written in David's life, we do know that there were a lot of tragedies in David's life, some brought about by his own sin, but others where literally those that should have been in his favor, those that should have been supporting him, those that should have been lifting up his hands, if you will, like they did for Moses, they should have been caring for him and loving him and, and, and praying for him. Instead, we're against him. Even at times where David was fleeing for his life, even from his own kin people. And that's a bad place to be. I hope that none of you guys are in church tonight hiding out from somebody looking for your life. None of y'all quite look like that. None of you are on the most wanted list, I don't think. And uh, I don't think you got any family looking out you know, for you or anything like that, you know, trying to hunt you down. And it's a good thing. But David had the opposite problem. It seemed that everybody that should have supported David because he was God's man said they were against him. But what we find is that in the middle of all this difficulty, in the middle of all this stuff where David could have turned to trust in his military might, he could have trusted in his riches, he could have trusted in his own strength. Instead what he does is he turns and he trusts the Lord. This must be the, the walk of every Christian. That no matter how strong we get, no matter how mighty we get, no matter how, um, no matter how, far into the Christian life we get, there is never a time in our life that we should not stop and turn to the Lord for dependence, even asking Him for righteousness to prevail. 
Let's read here uh, this psalm together. It says, Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the words of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings and thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked thou, uh, that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who can pass me about, they are enclosed in their own fat with their mouth. They speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. The idea is ready to pounce. Arise, O Lord. Disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked which is thy sword. From men which are thy hand, O Lord. Uh, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, in whose belly thou fillest with thy uh, hid treasure. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. Now let us pray. Lord, we come to you this night. We want to thank you that we could sing of your goodness and your grace tonight. Now, Lord, there's never a time where you're not good and that you're not gracious to us. So, Lord, help us be mindful of that. Help us to have attitudes that are thankful and, and grateful tonight that you might direct our hearts now to your word. I pray, God, that you would give us what is needed tonight, that you would give us confidence like David has to pray to you and to trust in you. And, Lord, that we might live like David where we can have such confidence in our prayers as he did. Lord, I pray that you would lead us, guide us, direct us tonight, speak to us and give us what we need, and Lord, meet the need of every heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, we find the righteous prayer in verses 1 through 5. We have a, a righteous prayer here. In verses 1 and 2, David prays for God to hear him and to judge justly and righteously. Hear the right, O Lord. Right? He's asking, Lord, hear what is right. You are the righteous God. You are the righteous judge. So, Listen to what is right and what is good. Do not listen. Do not give ear to the wicked. Do not give ear to the unrighteous. He says, even attend unto my cry. And that means exactly what that means. Attend unto my cry. He is crying out from the depths of his heart to the Lord. He is crying, perhaps even in the middle of wilderness, while those who are around him, they're, they're coming against him. Remember in David's life, while he's on the run, there are people who are um, that, that they're tearing down his name. They're tearing down... Um, that he was meant to be the, the king. They are literally hunting his life. They are like that lion that is uh, sneaking and hiding and ready to, to pounce upon him, to, to kill him. Nevertheless, here David is trusting in a couple of things. David is trusting not in his own strength, and his own faith, but he is trusting rather in God's faithfulness. Our faith must trust in God's faithfulness. One commentator writes about this passage and he says, Yahweh is the covenantal God who made the wonderful promises and has sworn to confirm them. But his child here is in deep distress. And so he confidently, not uh, definitely, approaches God in prayer. 
The reason for the confidence lies both in his trust in the covenantal God and his righteous way of life. Now, David prays in a way that I don't know that I've ever gotten to pray before. David prays in a way where he is confident that he is standing right before the Lord. Now, not just talking about a justified, saved sort of sense, but even in a sanctified way of going, look, you searched my heart, I've searched my heart, there's nothing hindering my fellowship with you, O Lord, so therefore I'm calling upon you to answer. That takes some confidence, does it not? It takes some confidence to trust that you are in right standing before God, but as well confidence in that God is going to hear you and to act righteously. Now, I often am able to pray that I trust God's righteousness or I trust His faithfulness to do what is right because God only does that which is right, that which is good, even that which is gracious, even in the midst of His judgment. Nevertheless, I don't find myself too often like David here where I can say, Lord, attend unto my cry, give ear unto me. They're not going out of unfeigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from my presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Because look, I'm living a right life here. I would love to be able to have such. But we have to understand here who he's praying to. The Lord God. He is the God of the covenant. What covenant? There's several covenants throughout the Bible that we find. We have, of course, the old and the new covenant is the idea uh, that, we, that Christ has now ushered in that, us into the new covenant. Uh, but nevertheless, we find that there is um, covenants going from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the way down the line. Even um, with Moses and the children of Israel there at Sinai and, and with the law being given. A covenant is, it is a promise. And the idea is that there were two kinds of covenants, if you will. There was the unconditional and the conditional. Unconditional was being made and you guess it, there was no conditions to it. Uh, unconditional, right? It was going to last forever and forever, no matter what. But then there was a conditional, and this is sort of the, what we find throughout um, the law being given with Moses and Exodus through Deuteronomy, where it's, uh, if you do this, then, right? Or even where you see it later on uh, in First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, I think Second Chronicles, uh, if my people, right, which, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, then, right? All these different things. And so it's a sort of if-then mentality. Here what we understand is that he is trusting in the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Jehovah, who has made covenant with the people of Israel and has made covenant with David. He has promised David that he will reign, that he will be king. Furthermore, he has promised something even greater than David, greater to David than David himself. He has said this, David, I know you want to, later on in David's life, he's going to say, you know, God, I'd love to build you a temple, right? And God's not going to allow that to happen, right? But he's going to allow him to, to raise up the funds and maybe even get all the pieces, but he won't let him get to that place. But he will tell David, nevertheless, it will be through your loins that a, a greater king will come and he will sit upon your throne, reign upon your throne, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, who is that? Well, it wasn't David's literal son, was it? No, but later on down through his lineage, there would be a man born of a virgin. His name would be Jesus. He is the God-man. And one day he is going to rule and reign from the throne of David, forever and forever. So we, we look forward to those promises. So David had been promised something that was great. But the reason why I want to look at this is because what we find is that the God of the covenant that he is trusting in, that he is praying in, every covenant of God reveals something. It reveals several things. First of all, it reveals his person. It reveals God's person. That's his worth. It's who he is. Every time that God speaks, it reveals more about who He is. It reveals what He's like. It reveals Himself to us so that we might know Him. The same with 
Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the way down the line, even to David, right? And, and even to us, that we can know who God is as God reveals Himself in these promises, in these covenants. He reveals His person, right? That, that's His worth. It's all that He is. But then it also reveals to us in a covenant His promise. A covenant, the idea of a promise. If this is what I believe that this is, His promise is, is, it is His Word. When you and I make a promise, right? We think about this. No longer are we taken at our word as much as we used to be. There used to be a time when a man was as good as his word, and his word, if he said it, he was going to do it, and if he didn't, he would apologize, he would make it right, that sort of thing. There was a time in your life, everyone in this room tonight, there was a time in your life where you would be on a playground and you would make a promise with a pinky. And that thing was sealed, wasn't it? Right? You, you couldn't cross your fingers, cross your toes, cross your eyes, none of that stuff. You made a pinky promise. It was real deal. Right? You took it serious. It was an oath. Right? Now we think about these promises and now we don't take them near as seriously. But when God promises, when God speaks, do you think He takes it seriously? Absolutely. Has there ever been a promise that God has made that He has not fulfilled or will not fulfill? No. He either hasn't fulfilled it yet when He's going to, or He's already fulfilled it. Right? God always fulfills His Word. Third, we find that God's covenant reveals His provision. It's His work. It is God who is the covenant-keeping God. It is His work, His, His decision to keep this covenant, to do the work of this covenant. Notice, even with the conditional covenants that would be given uh, to uh, Moses and, and all this, uh, and the, with the law, this if-then idea, if you do this, then I will do that, God always kept His end. Even when the if-then was, if you disobey, then I will do this, God always fulfilled that. We've got to understand God always keeps His Word. God always fulfills His Word. He always fulfills His work. And lastly, God's covenants also show us His presence. It is God's presence very much in the middle of every covenant that He gives, every promise that He makes. And in that, we find that that is the very will of God. To show us His presence, that we might live in His presence, that we might abide in His presence, that we might be brought back to His presence. And what we're going to see here in this psalm, in case you haven't picked up on it yet, is we start off where... David is coming to God and saying, Lord, attend unto the right, hear my cry, do that which is right and just. And at the end, in verse 15, we're going to find a return back to the presence of God, if you will. A place where David is resting assured that there is coming a day where he will literally, if you will, when I awake with thy likeness, I shall be satisfied when I wake. I, I will behold your face in righteousness, right? I'm going to see you, O oh Lord, I'm going to see my God. That's His presence. That's the beauty of the confidence that a Christian can have, that a, a saved soul can have, that a faithful person can have. There is confidence that all of us can have tonight that God is right, will do right, and will hear those that by faith live in righteousness. Now, let's think about this a little bit. How many of you guys want God to answer your prayers? I do. Let me ask an even more simple or possibly even more dumb question. How many of you want God to answer every one of your prayers? Well, sure, of course you do. If not, you probably wouldn't pray it. I'm glad He doesn't, right? It's a good thing. Thank the Lord that He knows much better than what we do. Nevertheless, we've got to understand this. Sometimes when we pray, and I won't do a hand raising for this because I wouldn't be able to do it, I don't think. How many times or how often... Or can you say that with confidence, every time you pray, you're absolutely confident that God can and will answer? 
I would love to say that I am, but I'm often not. We often pray in the flesh. We often pray not believing that God cares. We're going, this is too small to pray over, right? You know how many times they've brought the appetizer to the table and I've said this is too small to pray over, right? There, or there, you know, you're, you're not having a real meal at the house, right? Here in a little while, I can tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to go home, right? We had, we had lunch today. We're not going to have a real meal tonight, right? No real dinner. Might have a sandwich and that'll be about as big as it goes, right? Nothing crazy. You know what happens to me sometimes, right? I'm going to tell myself. Sometimes I go, can you look at me? Are you going to bless? You want to bless your bag of chips, right? I'm going, this is too small to pray over, right? You and I have this mentality sometimes that something is too small to pray over. So is there ever anything, let's put it a different way, is there ever anything that is too small to trust God over? No, of course not. Therefore, there's nothing too small that we should not pray about. David sees this, but an unrighteous person will pray unconfident prayers. And what I found in my own life is that when I am not living in step with God's Spirit and with God's direction, I'm not so confident in my prayers. There's times in my life when I'm in the flesh and I'm praying and it is as if, if the ceiling is right here above me and it's made out of brass and it hits and bounces back, goes through my ear and comes out the other side because there ain't much in there and I go, that's my prayer time. That's not a good place to be, is it? The most frustrating that I think we are as Christians is when we think that God doesn't hear us or that God doesn't care to hear us and our prayer life is all out of whack. But our prayer life only gets out of whack because we get out of whack. Never because God gets out of whack. God stays the same. He's steady as a rock, right? You and I, we go, oh, steady as a rock, right? Yeah, and not so much, right? We, we become wavering and unconfident in our prayer life. But here David shows that when we have a, a faith that prays with faith, believing and trusting that we can be confident in every prayer that we pray. A, another author put it this way, that, David is not complacent, but concerned for integrity, man's truth and God's. He searches his heart and finds assurance that his piety is no pretense. He therefore appeals to God to adjudicate accordingly, for his name needs to be cleared. God as judge can surely do no less, and David has nothing to hide. You and I should be the same with God. Like David here going, God, I've got nothing to hide. I'm an open book. Because whether you like it or not with God, you are an open book. The Bible tells us in Hebrews about the Word of God being uh, quick and, and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Dividing and cutting asunder, even to the depths, right? The bone and the marrow is the idea, right? It gets down to the nitty-gritty. Meaning, the Word of God, when we lay it open, it lays us open, right? When we lay the Bible open, and we, we don't just merely read it, but we let it read us, it, it, it gets down to who we are, and it shows us and leaves us naked before God where there is nothing to hide it's much like we talk about adam and eve when they they sin against god in the garden they realize they're naked they hide behind a tree they cover themselves with fig leaves and they think okay good we're safe here but nevertheless god knew right where they were god could see through the tree he could see through the fig leaves god can see through our false humility he can see through our pride he can see through our motivation he can see through our flesh he can see through our works he can see through our ups and our downs Yet he remains faithful and true. David here, though, it is clear that David is confident that he has communion with God and that God will righteously hear him and act on his behalf. He's trusting in the nature of God. He's trusting in his righteousness before God. 
He says, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. He's trusting that when God looks, God is able to look at a balance, if you will, and God's not going to lean a little more on this side or a little more on that side. You and I tend to already have prejudice with things. We tend to already have our opinion developed. Here in America, we talk about um, you know, uh, being innocent until proven guilty in the court of law, right? We've all heard that before. And yet most of the time, we hear about a story and we have immediately already made up our mind and decision long before we've heard all the story. Especially you get here in a small town, right? You've never heard a, one part of a story here. You go to this Dollar General, you hear this side of the story. You go to the next Dollar General, you hear the other part of the story. You check it at Food Line, you hear another part, right? And now, now you end up at Family Dollar because you're next door. And now you hear the other part. And now you've already made up your mind by the time you get to the second Dollar General about who done what, why they done it, the whole thing. That's a bad place to be. But see, God, when He sees things, He sees them equal and steady. There is no wavering with God about His feelings or emotions, about going, you know what, I'm feeling a little this way today, or you know, I don't know. God doesn't waver that way. He stays steady in His justice and in His judgment. So therefore, David trusts Him. David sees that he has a fellowship with God, therefore he can trust God. And as we get into verse 3, we see that David's life and faith have been tested, therefore they should be trusted. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Notice David's attitude here. David knows that his faith has been tried, has it not? Up to this point, it's been tried plenty of times. He's been on the run. He's had his name just absolutely ran through the mud and then some, right? All of these different things that he's had to depend upon the Lord for. And, and yet, here's what he says. I've been tested and now I'm trusting that my faith will cling on to you, that I will trust you. You've proved my heart. You've searched me out. You've visited me in the night. Let's get into this, right? The idea, David, about, about this little passage here in verse 3, it's going to be written about later on in another psalm. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 tell us this. This is another prayer of his. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Long before we get on the road and can remain on the road of the way of everlasting, we have to have our hearts and our minds tried by the Lord. If you and I were to try our Christian lives today and to put our Christian lives apart from our body up here and we had a jury of just me, myself, and I, we would go, you know what, they're pretty good, right? But if compared to God, who is the true judge, the true jury, and even the executioner, God sees what is right. God sees what is just. It is God that must do the trying. Now David searches his own heart, and I believe that we have a biblical case for reflecting and seeing. Is there something here? But I can tell you this, and what I've found in my own Christian life, and I'm sure that you have as well with yours, you and I always find a way to justify ourselves. We always find a way to come out on top. We always find a way to sound a little bit better than what we actually are, right? That you, you know, we hear about something, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. That sounds like an exaggeration here, right? No. When it comes to our sin, we're always going to try to justify ourselves, but God must try us. God must search us and examine us to see if there be any wicked thing in us. He's proved David's heart. He's visited him in the night. Now, the examination at night suggests a time of isolation from one's occupation 
and social relations. You know what happens at night? You put on your pajamas, put on your slippers, you get in your lazy boy, you pretend you're going to watch something, you fall asleep, you wake up, you go to bed, right? It's, it's the nighttime, right? You're there to rest. It is in your home, your sanctuary. It is a place of refuge, a place of comfort. It is a place where you are separate from everything else, right? That is your domain, if you will. Here, the idea of being searched in the night is that this is when one is completely alone with God. There's nothing else. No one else. So that nothing distracts from the examination. Job 7 talks about this. The examination involves self-examination of one's attitude, loyalty, and obedience to God's commandments. I believe that nighttime is not so much a great time to try to just get things right real quick before you go to sleep with the Lord and others, but rather it's a time to be able to look back and reflect about what God has done that day. Have we been faithful to the Lord in such a way? And if not, then to get it right. But we have to have that, that time with the Lord. Evening and mornings are a great time to spend with God because one, you're starting your day with God. Then two, you're ending your day with God. It is always great to start off praying and it's always great to end off praying, right? To trust the Lord with your day and to trust the Lord that, Lord, while I might not have been perfect today, while I've made these mistakes and here they are today, I trust in your goodness, your righteousness, and that you'll wake me up tomorrow and allow me to live for you. Help me to do so with the right attitude, the right loyalty, the right uh, motivation, all of these things. I believe that this is the heart of David here. Now, this is a hard prayer to pray because it does require us to have our hearts and our minds searched to see if there is something not quite right. And if it is, what does it mean? We have to get it right. That causes humility. We don't so much like humility. It's a hard prayer to pray. And I ask us tonight, much like David would have had to ask himself, is there anything keeping me from having fellowship with God right now this moment? If so, now's the time to get it taken care of. Not so much when we leave here, when you go to bed, even when you have to get alone. Even right now, to get it right with the Lord. The Lord is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteous if we go to him if we confess our sin right then in verses three to five we see that david pleads his cause by confessing his right standing before god and dependence upon him for deliverance look at this he says you've you've proved me i'm purpose that I, and my that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men by the words of my lips i have kept me from the passive destroyer we see all over and over throughout psalms and proverbs and throughout the bible that the idea about what comes out of our mouth it really tells what's in the heart and so he's saying i'm keeping my mouth right because he's keeping my heart right. But he says in verse 5, Hold up my goings in thy past, that my footsteps slip not. It is God's faithfulness and our faith in His faithfulness and His righteousness that keep us upright, that keep us from slipping. The times when we slip in our Christian life are the times we're not looking to Christ alone. They're the times where we're looking at the circumstances all around us. I think about uh, the illustration, of course, that is so uh, perfect for us. Um, it was when Peter goes, well, if it's really you, Lord, let me walk out there to you, right? And Jesus says, okay, come on out in the water, right? Step out of the boat, come out here. Even though I told you to stay in the boat, row across and I'll meet you on the other side. But we'll do this, right? So Peter hops out, he starts walking, and things are going good until what happens? You know the tale, you know the story, you know the account. He starts looking away, he sees the waves, he sees the storm, and he begins to sink. Idea of slipping, right? Here we find the same thing in our own life. But David is trusting that God will uphold him. We must trust by faith for God to hold our footsteps in the path of obedience. And I can find this to be true 
the more faithful that we are, not necessarily the more faithful that God is, but the more that we find that we're not so easy to slip. When I'm obeying the Lord, it does not seem that the ground around me is so slippery. Rather, it seems that it's a little bit more sure. The second thing that we find tonight in verses 6-9 through nine is a righteous plea. David is confident in God hearing and acting on his behalf, not only because of his character, but because of God's character. That's the ultimate reason. I've called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me. That's a confident prayer. That's what prayer should look like. We should not pray a prayer if we think that God's not going to hear us, which means if we trust that God is going to hear us, we ought to pray all the more then, all the more expectantly that God hears and He cares he says, O God, incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand uh, them which put their trust in thee for those that rise up against them. Any answer to prayer or confidence in prayer must be found in the nature of God. Lord, I'm coming to you today because not of my righteousness, but your righteousness. God, I'm trusting in you to hear this prayer because that's who you are. It's what you do. It's what you desire to do. God desires to hear your prayer. You can never overwhelm God with your prayers. I believe that we can underwhelm Him though. Generic, anemic, faithless prayers that are merely just moving our mouths and letting words come out that we don't fully understand or even don't fully mean. We must pray prayers of faith, of belief, of trust, like David had. Lord, I call upon You, and You will hear me. Something that I have found in my prayer life that has helped me is to pray much like David prays here. Lord, I'm praying this, trusting that You hear me, trusting that You care, not because it's the biggest thing in the world right now, but because it's big and it's important to me and You said that You care for me, right? It is trusting in our prayers that this is who God is, but here we can't pray a prayer like that unless we get in our Bible and begin to know who God is. Unless we know the nature and the character and the attributes of God, it's not going to help us be confident in, in praying that because we'll just go, oh, well, I don't know if he hears. I don't know if he cares. I don't know if this is it worth it to pray to him for this. Will he just reject it? Will he ignore it, right? I have called upon thee. That's the key. If I can't trust God, then I can't or shouldn't pray. But because I can trust God and should trust God, I can trust him with everything. Therefore, I should pray for everything. Here we find the importance of prayer. It should be our very identity. Our life is identified. It is a, a lifeblood of our life, of our Christian life, to pray, to pray, to pray, to trust, to trust, to trust. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Verse 7, he says, Show thy marvelous loving kindness. I love that. It's not just show me your goodness, show me your grace, but your loving kindness. Here, David pled with God to once again reveal His wonderful loving kindness. The latter word is translated from the Hebrew word cheked, which is most commonly rendered as mercy. Notice also how the psalmist acknowledged that God saves and delivers by His own right hand those who trust Him. God is always moved as we trust Him. Never will we be confounded when we trust Him. We must trust Him. I can trust in His marvelous loving kindness. Not just His loving kindness, but His marvelous loving kindness. This idea of His, His marvelous mercy, if you will, that's always there and always available. 
but I'll receive very little of it unless I'm trusting God for it, unless I'm asking God for it, receiving it by faith. It is always available to us, but the key is whether we will receive it by faith or not. He says, O thou that savest by thy right hand, the right hand was the idea of a righteous right hand, a judging right hand. It is a moving and an active right hand. It is one that has authority. He says, you save me with your right hand. Those that put their trust in you. God saves, doesn't He? That's what God does. That's who God is. But notice, salvation comes to those that trust Him. I'll never be saved from the plights and the trials of this life unless I trust the Lord. Now, He does not always save in the time that I think He ought to, but He always does it in the time that He believes He ought to. God's timing is always right. Therefore, I should trust Him. And I should trust that His hand desires to move upon my behalf because He hears. Not just with ears that are righteous and holy, but ears that are the ears of my Heavenly Father that has adopted me and cares for me. Therefore, I ought to pray all the more earnestly. However, we have run into something today. That loving kindness, the marvelous loving kindness, or the marvelous mercy of God, has become so common to us. But it must never become commonplace. While it is common, because if we look all around us, there's mercy everywhere. If we look with eyes of faith, we can't help but see God's mercy dripping all over our life. But it should never be so commonplace where we abuse His mercy or become apathetic to His mercy. And yet, sometimes we often do. In verses 8 and 9, we see that David is personally confident in his communion with God. He says, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. What a thought that is. To think David's going, I'm the apple of his eye. Hide me under the shadow of his wings. This goes back to something here that is much older than David. In Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses, Moses says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of the children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not He thy Father that hath bought thee? Hath He not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy Father and He will show thee thy elders and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the, to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob, Israel, is the lot of His inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste, howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of His eye. Talking about Israel there. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. Here, I believe that David is rem reminded of the song of Moses. 
that God looked at God's faithful covenant people that He had made covenant with, that He had been faithful to, even though they had not always been faithful to Him. As a matter of fact, Moses even talks of it. They're a crooked generation, a perverse generation. And it describes that God looked at Israel still yet as the apple of His eye. And where do you think that phrase came from? Think somebody smart made it up? It came from the Bible. It came from the Lord. The apple of His eye is how God viewed Israel. It's how God views His chosen people. And His chosen people are people of faith that trust and depend upon Him. Furthermore, Moses uh, sings this song and David is reminded of it in verse 11, as an eagle stirreth up her nest, floweth over her young. It's the idea of the work of the Holy Spirit that is seen in Genesis chapter 1. It is a brooding over. It is a protective uh, eagle who is taking her wings over her young to protect them, to, to keep them under a shadow, to keep the, the sun from beating down upon them, right? It's to protect their young. They're helpless. God looks at us and sees His faithful people, even at times unfaithful people, but belong to Him. We are in His nest, if you will, and we see that the sun beats down upon us. We try jumping out of the nest because we're foolish. A multitude of things. And what does God do? With His loving kindness, His marvelous loving kindness, He broods about us to protect us from the elements, to protect us from ourselves, to knock us on the head when we're acting up. Right, The whole thing. He cares for us deeply. What a beautiful picture it is of God's care for His covenant people. David trusts in this. He holds on to this. He clings to this. Vangamirin writes, these metaphors express the love of God in His acts of care and protection for those who are dear to Him. The shadow of the wings is a metaphorical description whose background is to be sought in the Song of Moses, which mentions both the apple of the eye, the spreading of the wings of the eagle, and it's the same context, the metaphors of God's love and care. So we are valuable to God because He loves us, not because I offer God anything worthwhile. We are fragile and needy and must be protected by His mighty yet tender hand. His righteous, mighty hand that can hold the world and crush the world can also hold us tenderly and gently with His marvelous loving kindness. God's hand is strong enough to defeat David's enemies, but compassionate enough to hold on to David's heart. God is strong enough with His right hand to take care of every problem that you've got in your life but as well is tender enough to hold your heart and your mind to keep you steadfast and unmovable, to keep you in His nest, to brood over you, to love you, to, to protect you, to guide you, to nurture you. That's who the Lord is. Then David looks in verses 10-12 through 12 and gives us a picture of the unrighteous. And he'll do so again in verse 14. He describes them here. He says, They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us. In our steps, they have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Here David describes the attributes and attitudes and actions of the unrighteous that are against him. And ultimately, because they're against David, God's people, they are against God Himself. Now, the phrase, their own fat. Anyone ever read that and wondered, what in the world does that mean? I did. <laughs> I got to look in a little bit. What does that mean? It is the idea of their own prideful prosperity. Those that were heavy set, if you will, in the Bible were often considered at times slothful, but they were also seen as prosperous. Many times those who had it 
Why were they so large and in charge, if you will? It's because they had more money. If you got more money, that means you can eat more food. Because you can buy more food. Poor people are skinny. <laughs> I don't know. That's not quite the idea, but you get what I'm saying, don't you? Right? And, and Bible times, the idea, and, and even not but so long ago, you go to other parts of the world today, it is those that are considered heavy. You go to look at sumo culture. You all ever seen the sumo wrestlers, right? Those guys are seen and, and, and treated like gods. They, they've got money galore. They've got fame. They've got everything. And they're the biggest guys around. Now here, what, what, what David is saying is that they are encompassed in all of their own personal wealth and prosperity. They are soaked up in themselves. That's a bad place, isn't it? It is a rebellious attitude and rebellious actions. That's what describes the unrighteous. Here we find a contrast. The unrighteous are, are self-reliant, self-serving, self-motivated, whereas David and the righteous, those who live by faith, they are God-dependent. They are God-serving. They are God-motivated for everything. The unrighteous are self-deceived, self-motivated. Because of this, there's no depths that they won't stoop to in their sin. Even to the point of verse 12. Like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. They're seeking to devour David. Seeking to devour righteousness. That's the world in which David lived. That's the world in which we live in as well. Sin is ugly and always wants to feed on itself. Sin is never satisfied. Much like the description here that they are enclosed in their own fat, that they're never satisfied. There's always more. Sin always wants more. It is never full. Then in verse 13, we find this righteous fight, if you will. He calls upon the Lord to fight for him. He says, Arise, O Lord, disappoint him. Disappoint my enemy. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. God had used these enemies in David's life to show David, teach David, how to trust him all the more. God uses your enemies. Do you know that? God used the enemies of Israel. They are described as His his servants. Nebuchadnezzar, as wicked as a man as he was, and he was wicked, wasn't he? Was called God's servant. God uses our enemies and our trials for our good and His glory. But God doesn't get the glory and we don't get the good out of it if we're not trusting in Him through it. Faith receives the good and faith gives God the glory in the midst of these things. That's where David was at in his life. Guzik writes, David declared his dependence on God to protect him. It wasn't because David was afraid of such lion-like enemies. As a young boy, David had bested both the bear and the lion, 1 Samuel 17. It was because David needed to see his enemy defeated by the hand of God, not the hand of David. What you and I need to see in our life is not us conquering the things that are in front of us, but for us to trust God to conquer those things, to see God give the victory. Over and over in the Old Testament, specifically with Israel, God had said to them, if you do this your way and you win, you'll get the glory, you'll get prideful, and you'll forget all about me. And you know what they would do? They would go into battle, and then they'd lose the battle. 
And they come crying to God, go, God, what happened? Well, I told you not to go. You wanted the glory for yourself. I wonder how many times I've rushed into a spiritual battle with fleshly armor without trusting God and I've gotten knocked on my rear and I've blamed God for it. Lord, you were supposed to take care of me. How could you let them come against me? How could you let this trial happen? And he's going, well, how, why would you go into the battle without me? That makes no sense, does it? Why would we not trust God to fight a battle that only He can fight? Why would we not trust God for every battle of this life? And David's testimony is clearly seen with, with the, the bear, the lion, and even Goliath. Where he's going, it's going to be the Lord that does this. The battle is the Lord's. Only God is truly powerful enough to defeat all of our foes. And we are assured that that future day is coming. In verse 14, then once more, David describes the unrighteous. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy head treasure, they are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. He says, God, you've used them to try me to do all these things. He says, but I'm asking you, put them to a stop. And he describes the unrighteous that because they have gained and prospered, that their mind and their heart is only set in this world. It's much like the old song, Farther Along, right? Why, why do these wicked people, can, how can they live so wicked year after year, right? They're, they're the ones in the wrong. I don't understand it. Well, farther along, we'll understand it, right? Farther along, we'll understand why. And here, this is sort of David's cry, sort of David's song, if you will. The unrighteous only care for being filled by temporary things and living for the here and now, whereas David has the promise of eternity. Let the world have the world. We're going to have the kingdom of God which shall never end. David desires deliverance from those who seem to prosper, yet they live wickedly. Unrighteous men are carnally, fleshly, worldly, temporary-minded. Spurgeon explained it like this. He said, Their sensual appetite gets the gain which is craved for. God gives to these swine the husks which they hunger for. A generous man does not deny dogs their bones, and our generous God gives even His enemies enough to fill them if they were not so unreasonable as never to be content. God says, you can stay in your unrighteousness and I'll keep giving. You can have the world, but you won't have Me. What a terrible plight that is. And yet they have no idea. But look at verse 15 and we're done. And this is, this is the key. This is the psalm here. As for Me, right? they can have the world, but as for Me, I will behold Thy face in righteousness. I'm going to stand before you righteously. I'm going to live righteously before you. I'm going to one day see you perfect in righteousness. David's looking forward to this. The righteous have the confidence that they will enjoy God's presence, victory, and joy. I will. I shall. You find both of those in verse 15. What does that tell us? There's a surety. There's a blessed assurance, if you will. There's a confidence and a trust. Not just a hope so, but a, a confidence. Hope is in the Bible, but it's not this sort of, well, I hope I get to see God. 
and is confident that I will see God, not based upon my righteousness, but based upon His righteousness that now allows me to live right before Him. What we find as well is that only in God is there satisfaction. True satisfaction. The wicked have grown fat, literally. They have grown to where they have everything in this world. Their bellies are filled. Their bank accounts are filled. They have treasures galore. And yet, when it comes to the judgment day, they will have nothing. And David here, and those who live by faith, will have everything. And everything that we need for eternity, it is the Lord Himself. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is our strength. He is the greatest thing about heaven itself. The wicked were never truly satisfied, though they had the world. But the righteous find satisfaction in knowing God now and the future assurance of seeing Him face to face. 1 John tells us this. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1-3. through three. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. That's what David experienced, isn't it? The world hated David because they didn't know God. But David stood firm in his faith saying, the world might hate me, the world might be against me, but God is my victory. God is the one who will give the increase. God is the one who will defeat my enemy. God is the one who will give my protection. God will keep my feet from, not, from, from slipping. And he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. This drove David all the more to live a righteous life. Do you know, dear saint of God, dear child of God tonight, that one day you will see God face to face? That is a beautiful, wonderful promise, is it not? And at the very same time, for those who do not know the Lord, it should strike fear and terror. And even if we think about it too long, it might cause us to tremble just a hair, and I don't know that it's a bad thing. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It drives us to wisdom and to knowledge to trust God all the more. So tonight, as we bring this to a close, I want us to be able to live like David. Confident in our prayer life. Trusting that God hears us. Trusting that God will give the victory. And while we might not see it in this world, and though the world around us might seem to prosper, and it might seem like we sink down lower and lower, those of us who are lowly and humble, God shall raise up. And we shall see our God. And we can trust and have confidence. And here's what David said. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Tonight, may we find true, biblical, godly satisfaction in knowing our Lord and trusting Him in all things, through all things, for all things. One day, we shall see Him and it will be worth it. In the end, the moment we see our Savior, it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight. We want to thank you and praise you, Lord, that we could look to your word. Thank you for confidence that David expressed in his prayer. Help us to do the same, Lord. Fill us with faith. Fill us with strength. Lord, fill us with confidence that, that while this world might be seeming to win the battles and, and uh, to, to win uh, just with all the things that they've got, Lord, help us to have the attitude, God, that we don't need to care so much about this world. We simply need to care that one day we get to see you and that we live our life even now in your presence and before your face. 
as we know that You see our hearts, You try our hearts. And God, we pray that You would allow us to live righteously and holy before You. We love You. We ask that You would give us safety as we leave from this place, that You would allow us to meditate upon Your Word this week, and that we would be used of You for Your honor and for Your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.